Good morning, how are we doing? Excellent. It's great to be uh, back uh, after last week. Had a chance to go to my niece's wedding last weekend. And so thanks to the Mexico team for uh, filling in. Uh, I heard they did a great job, right? Yeah, very nice. Um, we find ourselves this morning in week 15 uh, of our series on the book of Revelation. And so we're going to be looking at chapter 14, uh, the first 13 verses. Uh, in part one of this message, I've entitled, When Life uh, Isn't Fair. And so go ahead and take your Bibles out, turn to chapter 14. Uh, it's page 1036 in the Rack Bible, if you need one uh, in front of you. And so we're going to ask the question, uh, so what do you do when life uh, is not fair? And I don't mean this. I don't mean like, mommy, he got a little bit more dessert than I did kind of unfair. Right? You've heard that unfair from your kids. That's not what I'm talking about. I don't even mean like he got an A and I got a B and I should have got an A unfair. I don't even mean he got the promotion that I should have gotten unfair. The question is, is what do you do when life is really, really unfair? When when your parents abuse you and you have to live with that for the rest of your life. That's unfair. It, It affects everything about who you are. What do you do when life is at the deepest level unfair? Or you're born with a handicap that affects every day of your life, not fair. Or somebody spreads a rumor about you and it affects every relationship in your life and people believe it and you know it's a lie, not fair. What do you do? These last chapters in Revelation, believers in Christ are allowed to be persecuted by this satanic beast. Is that fair? In chapters 14, 15, and 16, it gives us four realities that will empower hope in our hearts, even when the world, even when our world is falling apart. I don't know about you, but does your world fall apart? Mine has. What do you do when that happens? The great thing about the book of Revelation is it tells us here is life at its worst. Here is unfair at its most unfair. And here is God's hope in the midst of it all. And since chapter 11, we focused on what's been happening on this earth, on the political, on the power of the beast and its control over people. And in chapter 14, we turn from the earth to the spiritual. And we see things that are Clearly give us hope no matter what. And as we look at these four things, we'll see two of them today and then two the next time that we meet together. And we'll see these events that are going to happen and and when they do, it's going to change everything. Four realities for your life when, when the world is falling apart. That to really understand these realities, we need to take a step back and remember where we are in our study. And we started with worship. Remember that? 
Worship was the attitude that helps us understand this book. And if you try to understand Revelation from the perspective of your worries, you'll never make it, right? It's just a book that you will worry more. But but if you understand it from a worship perspective and of God and who he is, then it starts to make sense, right? That was That was chapters four and five. And then we looked at the seven seals and they were opened and disaster starts to come on the earth. And then after that, these last few weeks, we've been seeing this long interlude between the seven trumpets and the seven bowls being the final expression of God's judgment upon this earth. And in this interlude, there's been a lot of battles, right? We saw the battle of the two witnesses and the satanic powers on the earth. And the battle of the dragon with the woman and the battle of this horrible beast who rises out of the earth and the beast who comes out of the sea. And seemingly in these last chapters, Satan is getting more and more control, right? He's having his way even more. I don't know about you, but sometimes it seems that way in our own lives. See, Revelation isn't just a book about the end. It's a book about us. It's a book about hope for anyone at any time. And if God can give hope in the circumstances that we're going to look at over the next few weeks, he can give hope for your life and he can give hope for my life for sure. And God, through these chapters where Satan seemingly is to get more and more power, he keeps reminding us to hold on. He, he keeps reminding us to have faith. And now we hit chapter 14 and we can see why. And in these four events, these four unforgettable pictures, these four places that the future is inevitably headed towards, we see the reason for hope. Again, we're going to look at two of them today. So this morning we're going to talk about some hope even when life isn't fair. And to begin with, I want you to know that we all struggle with that, right? We struggle with this whole concept, this whole idea that life isn't fair. Like, come on, God, why is this happening to me? Well, we all know that there are a lot of unfair things in life. But but what does God do about it? God tells us, what what the future is all about. And he tells us the hope that he has for the future. And I love the way chapter 14 starts. Especially in light of what we've seen in the last few weeks. The beast and the horns and these horrible pictures of evil. Things getting worse and worse and worse. And then we get to verse 1 of Revelation chapter 14. It says, Then I looked and behold on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. What a relief. Right? Just take a deep breath right now. I mean, how sweet is that? In the middle of all these pictures comes the Lamb of God, right? Jesus Christ. And as soon as he walks on the scene, guess what? It changes everything. As soon as he walks on the scene in your life, it changes everything. As soon as he walked on the scene in my life, my life was changed. 
And you know what? As soon as he walks on the scene in the end times here, he walks into the situation, we see hope clearly again. It's been there all the way through. We can just see it more clearly when we see Jesus. So so let's start with the first three verses in chapter 14. It says, Then I looked, and behold, and on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like a roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice I heard was like a sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the living creatures and before the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. That right there, my friends, is good news. Right? This is the first picture. Go ahead and take your note sheets out of your program. You can follow along with me. The first event that we see is a lamb leading worship. Right? Jesus with the 144,000 leading this incredible expression of worship. A few weeks ago, Trudy and I had the opportunity to go with some friends to the Outcry Tour. How many people went? Anybody? Okay, there was a few. It was at the IMB. Great time of worship. About 3,000 people packed into the IMB. They're all worshiping God. Uh, I'm looking around. I mean, this is awesome, right? But but how do you describe this type of worship with 144,000? Well, well, the Bible says it's like thunder. It's like harps playing and they're singing a new song before the Lamb and with the Lamb. You, you can't even imagine to begin to think of what that's like. So before we talk about this new song, there are some questions to answer about like, who are these 144,000 and what's the significance of standing on Mount Zion? Hebrews 12 says that you and I have come to a heavenly city now as believers. We've come to heavenly Mount Zion. And so there's this expression of Mount Zion as being heaven. There's also a Mount Zion obviously in Jerusalem, right? So which one is he talking about? Well, well, let's start with the 144,000 who were last seen in Revelation chapter 7, right? They're identified as this group of Jewish believers who minister through uh, the, the great tribulation and they're given the seal of protection throughout this period. And so since they stand on Mount Zion with the Lamb, it shows that they have emerged victorious from the great tribulation, Right? The beast of Revelation 13 certainly has not defeated the 144,000, right? They are triumphant. They're worshiping. They're standing firm with Jesus. And so Revelation chapter 14 will answer two important questions raised in Revelation chapter 13. Right? The beast of Revelation 13 was terrifying and awesome. Right? 13 verse 7, he even can make war against the saints and overcome them, it said. So, so it's fair to ask, is the beast completely victorious over all of God's people in the presence of the 144,000 on Mount Zion with the Lamb emphatically says what? No. 
The second question has to do with this, this satanic dictator himself. What happens to the beast and his followers? And the rest of Revelation 14 will answer that question. So in Revelation 7, the 144,000 are seen at the beginning of the Great Tribulation. In Revelation 14, it shows them triumphant at the end of the Great Tribulation. And so why are they gathered on Mount Zion? Right? Zion's the ancient name of the hills that make up Jerusalem. It's the place where the Messiah gathers his redeemed and reigns over the earth. Psalms 48 and Isaiah 24. And some commentators see this Mount Zion as the heavenly Zion referred to in Galatians 4. But but if that's the case, the 144,000 are victims of the beast. And, And now we're in heaven with Jesus. But that view doesn't seem to match the context at all. And also makes us wonder what good was God's seal on the 144,000 in Revelation 7, right? So the 144,000, I think, are kind of like this young, uh, like the young Jewish men who survived the, the fiery furnace of Daniel 3. They proved God's ability to preserve his people. And then it says, having his father's name written on their foreheads. So the followers of Satan and the beast may have a mark on their hand or forehand, right? We saw that in Revelation 13. But, but that mark is just a copy Right, of the idea behind the identifying mark on the foreheads of each one of the 144,000 showing that they belong to, to the Father. And so who are these people having his Father's name written on their foreheads? Well, I'll tell you what, it's, there's not a B for Baptist on their forehead or an M for Methodists or a P for Presbyterians. And I know we make such a big deal about this group and, and that group or this denomination and that denomination. The, the point here is that if you go to heaven's gate and you ask, are there any Baptists, Methodists or Presbyterians in heaven? The angel would probably just look at you and probably not give you an answer. But, but if you were to ask, are there any Christians in heaven? Right. The angel would say, oh, yeah, there's a lot of them. Because in heaven, we're called only by one name, the, the, the name of God that is stamped uh, on their forehead. And then it goes on to say the voice of many waters like the voice uh, of a loud thunder. And this is the voice of God. And perhaps God spoke here to proclaim his approval of these 144,000 faithful servants in the spirit of Matthew 25 when he said, well done, good and faithful servants. Moving along, it says, And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. And we remember that the elders of Revelation 5 have harps. And maybe this is where their music is heard to accompany the worshipful singing of the 144,000 as they sing this new song. And they sang it, as it were, a new song before the throne. Revelation 14, 1, the 144,000 have their feet firmly planted on earthly Mount Zion. And yet their praise takes them right into the presence of God, right before the throne. And I thought, man, we need to realize that when we come and we praise and we worship, that our voices can be heard in the heavenly places. 
Charles Spurgeon said this about the new song. He said, heaven is not the place to learn that song. It must be learned on earth. You must learn, hear the notes of free grace and dying love. And when you have mastered their melody, you will be able to offer to the Lord the tribute of the grateful heart, even in heaven and blend it with the harmonies eternal. So as we move on to verses 4 and 5, which are very interesting verses, we see the description of the 144,000. First it says, for, for they are virgins. And many take the virginity of the 144,000 as simply a, sim, a symbol of their general purity. But, but when you look in the New Testament, you see Paul recommended celibacy in distressing times in 1 Corinthians 7. And Jesus spoke of the woes upon those with children and families in the day of Matthew 24. And so it's not hard to see that God maybe would specially call the 144,000 to a literal celibacy for the kingdom's sake during the great time of this tribulation. And the term virgins is commonly applied to to women and not men. So so does the use of the term mean that all the 144,000 are women? I don't think so. I I think that and and agree with the Greek scholar A.T. Robinson when he says the Greek word there can be applied to men as well as women. And then the flip side of that coin is if the term virgins is a picture of purity in general, it reinforces the identification of the 144,000 with Israel. And Israel is referred frequently in the Bible as the virgin, the daughter of Zion uh, of Second Kings 19. The, the virgin daughter of, of Zion in Lamentations 2. And the virgin of Israel in Jeremiah 18 and, 30, and 31. And so then we see a second description here. These are the ones who follow the, the, the lamb wherever he goes. And these 144,000 are of Jewish heritage. We know that from Revelation 7. And yet they're clearly believers in Jesus. Otherwise, they wouldn't stand with the lamb. They wouldn't follow the lamb wherever he goes. And, and could not be without fault before the throne of God. And so everyone saved during the tribulation will be saved in exactly the same manner as anyone today. By grace, through personal faith in Jesus Christ. And even though the rapture of the church ends, God's dealing with the church on earth, it certainly does not change the way people come to salvation or become a part of the larger family of God, which includes all the redeemed uh, before and after uh, the church. And then we see a third description, and that is these were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And so the 144,000 are the beginning of a greater harvest. That they are the first fruits. And because they're described as first fruits here, many have thought that they themselves will be instrumental in God's plan for bringing a great harvest during the tribulation time. And Revelation 7 verse 9 describes that this huge amount of people saved out of the great tribulation and these 144,000 described as first fruits may be the ones that, that that are used to preach the gospel to those who will be saved during that time so so that's the the first event that we see here a lamb that's leading worship the second event that we see here is an angels announcing the truth 
And so verses 6 and 7, then I saw another angel flying directly overhead and with the internal gospel to proclaim those who dwell on earth to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who has made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of the water. Would you write down in your notes today the word voice? It's a word that's going to be very important in chapters 14, 15, and 16. It's used seven times in these chapters. And again and again, this voice from heaven, whether it's an angel or from God himself, this voice changes everything. And when you feel like life is unfair, one of the things that goes along with that feeling sometimes is that you feel like you're just not being heard. And as much as it hurts and as much as you talk about that hurt, you're just not being heard. And the truth is, is that sometimes you're not being heard. And you begin to think, will my voice ever be heard? Well, maybe, maybe not. But his voice, his voice is heard and his voice is changes stuff. So when his voice is heard, you and I as believers have hope. And really, that's the truth. It's what we look forward to. And this angel comes and proclaims a gospel. Uh, the one time in the book of Revelation that this word gospel is used, and, and you know what it means. It means good news, right? And he speaks and it changes things and, and he has some good news. And so the, the first angel's good news is, is to worship God, right? We need to worship God because he is real. My, my, my daughter Ashley was over yesterday and she was, you know, on her phone and doing Facebook or whatever. She came across this, this feed that talked about who God is. And there were 39 responses of who God is. I said, Ashley, read those. This I gotta hear. She, she began to read these responses of who God is and if he's real or not. And you would be amazed at what people said. Well, like there really isn't a God. There's this black hole over here and everything came out of that. I'm like, seriously. We are to worship God because God is real. He is the one who made the heavens and the earth and he made the sea and he made the springs of the water. And it's interesting to me that this angel uses nature as a witness of the greatness of God. What we need to do is give glory to God and worship Him willingly in this life. Because the, the, the reality is we'll, we'll be compelled to give Him glory uh, later, for sure. Because one day, one day, we all will give glory to God, right? Philippians 2, uh, it's not in your notes. You might want to jot it down. 9 through 11 says, Therefore God also has highly exalted Him and given Him the name which is above every name. And at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those that are under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To, to the glory of God, the fire, Father. <laughs> and you know what? The bitter irony of all this is that people that, that damn themselves eternally by their refusal to, to face the truth one day will, will be forced to face it. Sooner or later, the glory that they refuse to give the Creator willingly will be given to Him. 
His due will come at the time of his wrath. And it says to every nation, tribe, and tongue, and people, which I think is a valid fulfillment of Jesus' promise in Matthew 24, that the gospel would be preached to all the world before his second coming. But at the same time, it can never be an excuse for neglecting missions. Right? God has given the responsibility for spreading the gospel not to angels, but rather what? To his people. And this is the only place in the New Testament where we see angels preaching the gospel. Pretty interesting. So this angel says, worship God. Why is that important? Why is that good news? Well, let's look at what the next two angels have to say. Angel number two says, Babylon has fallen. Verse eight. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And so what's up with this Babylon thing? This is the first mention in the book of Babylon the great. And we'll get to it later in in chapter 17 and 18. Well, we'll take a close look at what it means and what he's talking about here. Well, what we know, though, is prophetically Babylon sometimes refers to a literal city or or a religious system or a political system, all stemming from from the evil character of historic Babylon. And then it says, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her sexual immorality. And when we're told that Babylon has led all nations into fornication the main idea here is spiritual fornication right the worship of other gods and suffice to say that this is satan's power structure this is the way satan gets things done the angel comes and says babylon has fallen and everything that is a part of satan's principalities everything that is a part of the way he rules uh, this world will fall apart in the end it will fall apart that's what's going to happen and, and then a third angel comes now now i don't want to read what the third angel said None of us probably want to know or look at what the third angel said because its news is not good news. It's true, but it's not good. The third angel comes and says in a loud voice, verses 9 through 11, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full into the cup of his anger, And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Verse 9 reminds us again that There's this connection between worshiping the beast and his image and receiving the mark on the forehead or on the hand. And I know I already said this, but I want to make this point again that no one will casually or accidentally take the mark of the beast. The connection between the mark of the beast and and worshiping the beast will be clear. 
But also understand that receiving the mark may seem innocent enough to those who are, are as Revelation puts it, earth dwellers or non-believers in their eyes. It may not seem much more like a mere pledge of allegiance or, or devotion to the Antichrist and his government. It was the same way in the first few centuries of Christianity, right? Remember, we talked about, I think in the, in the series on the book of John, we, we talked about when they burned a pinch of incense to the image of Caesar, Caesar and, and pledging that Caesar is Lord and was regarded as an innocent act of, of civic duty to, to the ancient pagans. And then I want you to notice the word also in verse 10. It's extremely important to the passage. Because this is saying that if someone worships Satan, if someone says, I want to be with Satan, I want to follow his way, guess what? You get what you ask for. Right? That, that person will be with Satan. This is exactly what God is desperate to rescue every one of us from that. That is his desire. Okay, because this is what's going to happen. Let me give you a little bit of a picture of how much we need Jesus to save us from this wrath. We need to help people understand their need for rescue. So as we move along in verse 10, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out in full strength into the cup of his anger. So see, here's the deal. Those that worship the Antichrist are going to be forced to drink the wine of the wrath of God. This cup of God's wrath. It's like undiluted wine mixed with spices to make it like full strength. And the idea that God holds a cup of wrath, which he makes those under judgment drink, it is expressed more than 13 times in the Bible. Psalm 75, 8, Jeremiah 25, 15, just a few examples. This is the idea behind the cup that Jesus wanted to avoid. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane. What did he say? Let this cup pass from me. This is it. But Jesus willingly took the cup. Of his father's wrath that we deserved. And here the enemies of Jesus have no choice. And the cup is forced upon them. We have the wine of the wrath of God and the cup of his indignation. And the wine in the cup is associated with wrath. The Greek word thymos. Which describes this passionate anger. The cup itself is even associated with indignation. The Greek word orge, which is anger from a, I have to work this out kind of mentality. And that Greek word is common for God's anger in the New Testament. The word thymos is used only 11 times, 10 of the 11 here in the book of Revelation. And then the rest of verse 10 and 11 say this. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night. This passage teaches us some important truths about hell and about the eternal destiny of those that go there. And I don't know if you caught this. This is a controversial 
passage we'll get to in a minute. First thing that we learn is that he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone. This shows us that the suffering of hell is real torment. It is painful and repulsive. And then it says in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Did you catch that? What does that mean? It means that God's omnipresent. Right? That God is not absent from hell. Well, okay, that's a shocker. And I know what you're going to say. You're going to say in Thessalonians it says that those in hell suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Right? These two verses right here are the most, probably one of the most confusing because of their apparent contradiction here. Uh, but even so, I think that there's an explanation, but we got to go to the original language to, to do it. So we get a little technical right here. Revelation 14.10, the word presence is a literal translation of this Greek word, anapian, which means in the presence of before. Right, This is a spatial word suggesting proximity and literal measurable distance. In contrast, the word translate presence in Thessalonians is prosopon, right, which is most commonly refers to a person's face or outward appearance. It refers to fellowship and relationship. And according to theologian Dr. Lewis Burkhoff, he says that what Paul is referring to is a total absence of the favor of God. So what he's saying is, is that hell is the exact opposite of heaven. And heaven provides blessings and wholeness, not through being closer spatially to God, but being in complete what? Fellowship with him. So, so, so God is in hell and and all of his holiness and righteous judgment, but it will be absent of his love. And what will be there is his holy justice and his wrath against sin. And hell is a place with complete lack of blessing due to the severing of any fellowship with God. I know that's pretty interesting stuff. But then the text goes on to say, The smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. And those that worship the Antichrist receive his mark will endure this wrath for all eternity in hell. And here the fact of eternal torment is plainly stated. It says what? Forever and ever. You know what that means? Forever and ever. Right? If if the only consequences for sin are in this life or the only penalty for sin is temporary then like what's the point dr wolvert says this of the phrase forever and ever it literally is into the ages of ages it is the strongest expression of eternity of which the greek is capable of expressing And in describing these worshipers of the beast, the word here as well as the word receive in verse 11 is in the present tense, uh, emphasizing a continued worship of the beast over a long period of time. And it's the same present tense that is used in describing their torment. And because of all this, Jesus is saying to everyone as he stretches out his hand, 
And he says, you know what? I want to rescue you from all of this. And he never stops saying that. Everything that has happened so far in the book of Revelation, all the destruction that is coming, Jesus is still saying what? Grab my hand and I will rescue you. And when we do, verses 12 and 13 say, here's a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. What a great picture here. No rest for the wicked, but eternal rest for the righteous. That's the hope that we have. One day we'll rest from our labor. Right? We, from the work of trying to make life work, from the load of trying to bear up under the unfairness of life for those that read the book of Revelation back then and many who read it today, who are under persecution, who have hope because of their faith in Christ. And in the light of this hope, what should we do? In the light of this life that God wants to give to us, what should we do? We should do exactly what the angels did. And the angels went out and they proclaimed to all the earth with what each one of us should be proclaiming every day that that we're alive. We should proclaim the good news. We should tell people that that Satan's power is going to fall inevitably. And those who worship him are going to be tormented day and night for all eternity. And so he says, worship God. Worship the one who loves you, the the one who wants to rescue you, the one who sent his only son to die on a cross for you, the one who drank the cup of God's wrath for you. And our joy as believers is to tell other people this reality and to proclaim the love of Christ to them. We've talked about the fact that there's one of two futures this morning. That there's a future of singing with the lamb or there's a future of being separated from the presence and the love of God. Those are the options. Let's pray. Father God, thank you uh, for your word today. And, and God, we all have people that are close to us, people in our families, people we work with, neighbors, who, who don't know you. Some of them are, are close to making a decision. Some of them just think you're a big joke. Whatever the situation is, my prayer this morning is that through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, that you would cause them to look to you for rescue. That they would see the hope for their lives, for their eternity in you and you alone. Because God, you love them. You, You love them probably more than we do. So we ask you this morning to bring your love and your hope and your power into their lives. And God, would you help us to be the witnesses that we need to be, that we should be. Help us to proclaim the truth clearly and with love, God. As we leave this place today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.